This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. To the best of my knowledge, there is no biblical Hebrew word for institution. Now, I hate when people use that that technique is like, there's no word in right. Japanese for this. Right. Um, because there's always a way, uh, that's another way of saying that there's no one-to-one translation of any word into any other language. Uh, mm-hmm. and at the same time, right. So on the one hand, nothing's th- translatable. On the other hand, you can always approximate something, right? So everything is translatable, but I think it is worthwhile to observe that, th- that the biblical world thinks in terms of individuals and peoples and institutions are very much uh, set dressing. And what I mean by that, now that doesn't mean they're not important. On the contrary, one of the most important things to remember about the Bible is that contrary to what we typically think about, which is that uh the Bible is this sort of moral system in the same way that Plato creates a moral system or Aristotle creates a moral system, which is you kind of begin from first principles and reason your way towards what the whole thing should look like. The Bible is not this primordial blueprint for everything else, although it could be that also, but it, it doesn't present itself as that. The Bible is an in media project, by which I mean the Bible begins in the middle of a story or in many ways near the end of a story, not at the beginning. Uh, it has a creation narrative, but that creation, but that creation story is deliberately reacting to other creation stories. Um, it has a primordial flood story, but that flood story absolutely has in mind other flood stories that are circulating throughout the ancient world and is deliberately responding to them in order to make a series of moral points about how God wants us to live in the world. Um, If you think about now, another important thing to remember about the Bible is that it begins with a number of false starts deliberately. Part of the part of what the literary structure of the beginning of Genesis is trying to communicate to us is that it's actually okay to not get things right the first time. Uh, what the Hebrew Bible introduces to the world uniquely in ancient civilization is the concept of redemption and and in that respect, aspiration, right? The, the, the world and existence and nature are not things to be suffered and accommodated to, they're things to be transformed. Um, now, therefore, what you can observe when you look at the beginning of Genesis is that it actually begins with a universal tale and then immediately gives us numerous reasons to discard that Avenue and instead focus on particularity, right? So Genesis one and two and the, well, Genesis one is, is the world the entire universe. Genesis two is humanity the word for for Adam in Hebrew is just the word for man or for, for in some cases for human and the word for Eve, even though we've adopted it today as a proper noun uh, and as a as a proper name, is just the word for life. And 
Adam and Eve, in other words, are just another way of saying man and woman. They're universal archetypes. Noah also is a universal archetype. He's sort of the uh, the eyes through which we view, we, like any human being, would view the destruction of mankind. Uh, Cain and Abel are prototypical siblings. Everybody can see themselves in Cain and Abel. Genesis 10 tells us about the proliferation of nations across the world. Babel tells us the story. Genesis 11 tells us a story about the, the a, a universal project, although hiding beneath the surface is, is in many ways dystopia. It's only now all of those things fail, right? Man and woman sin and get themselves thrown out of paradise. The first two siblings, one murders the other one. Humanity destroys itself in an orgy of iniquity and it has to be wiped out by a flood. Babel implodes. And it's only after all of those things don't work out that God says, okay, the universal project, humanity as a type, there's, this is actually the wrong way to go. And in fact, what I've done is created individual. I haven't created humanity. The part, part of the message that God is helping mm. us uncover, although this is, I believe this is obvious to God from the get-go, but what, what God is helping us understand about, about him and about the nature of creation is that in fact, God did not create humanity. God created individual people and those people each have limitless worth. Someone made this point to me in the, in recently about the Holocaust, um, of all things, which is that it wasn't the murder of 6 million people, uh, and 6 million, you know, obviously the vast majority of whom were Jews. It wasn't just the million, it wasn't the murder of 6 million Jews. It was 6 million murders. Uh, murder of 6 million Jews makes it sound like someone snapped their finger and 6 million people died. There's actually 6 million separate tragedies and incommensurable tragedies. So all of this is to say that God then gets, then you get to Genesis 12 and then you encounter Abraham and Abraham is not a stand in for humanity. Abraham is just some guy in the backwaters of ancient Mesopotamia who makes his way to what we now call the promised land, the land of Israel. He makes his way to Canaan at the back end of the bronze age. So Genesis 12, which is where really everything begins, where God says, you know what? I've actually created people. So I'm going to focus on one person and we're going to see one family and we're going to see Abraham and Sarah. And we're going to see if we can get this right and have one people actually be a proof of concept for, for goodliness and godliness in the world. Now that's important because the whole point of that transition to Genesis 12, which the Bible really begins with Genesis. The story of the Bible begins mm-hmm. with Genesis 12. Everything else is kind of background. The Bible begins in reaction to everything that's happening in the world. The Historically speaking, Abraham makes his journey to the promised land as the late Bronze Age, as the Bronze Age is collapsing. And as all of the, the states of the late Bronze Age are in decline and as people from the Aegean, what you know, from, from the area that would eventually become Greece, 
As peoples from the Aegean are making their way to the Levant, these people eventually become the Philistines as iron weapons and iron technology are making their way to the ancient world. So the the Abraham kind of begins his story in the Bronze Age and the Israelites traveling away from Egypt are also at sort of the tail end of the Bronze Age, right? So the 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 Bible structures itself around a response to Mesopotamia, a response to Egypt. And the reason that's important is because while individuals have their can can have origin stories and in fact should have origin stories and peoples should all have and peoples in many ways have origin stories like there's a Sinai moment where uh where Israel is born as a nation as it were um there's a moment where Abraham makes a covenant with God institutions namely the features of everyday life all of those things that mediate between the collective and individuals are things that are already there that the bible's reacting to now that's not a bad thing the Bible is a is a reactive story because the Bible is a critique. The Bible is prophecy, right? Prophets are looking at things that exist and telling us and helping us how to think about them. Uh, so my first thought about institutions would be that they are things that we have to evaluate, not things we necessarily have to create. Although the, the Bible does create certain institutions and we can talk about them. Temple, priesthood, monarchy. We can talk right. about those things. But those things as well are, 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 are things that already exist in the rest of the world. Monarchy is a good example that the Israelites ask for, right? We, sh- we want to have a monarchy like everyone else is a monarchy. So institutions are things that we need to, that we need to evaluate. It's not, it's not like, at least I don't think institutions are baked in to, to the Bible's worldview from the get-go. The Bible mm-hmm. wants to give us a framework for how to evaluate all of those superhuman and sub-national institutions in our lives. So that's that's really helpful. I love that you just started with Genesis 1 and walked it all the way forward. It's like what we want everybody to do with every topic. Exactly. <laughs> and you're the only one who actually just sat here and did it. Uh, uh, and then and you notice you see new things by the, the way you, you told the story of this kind of universal uh, uh, and these archetypical, which sounds a little like Jordan Peterson, Jungian, kind of the archetypical. But uh, I, I mean, they're riffing off something that has some truth in, in the history, right? They're not making things whole cloth, uh, making up, up things whole cloth. The But the, an institution is something that mediates between the, the collective and the individual. Right? That seems like a very helpful way to think about what we're going to see, uh, the institutions will always exist. I mean, I think, you know, the, if you think of it like one basic question, when when does an individual become a member of an institution uh, at the most basic level? Is it when two people, you know, like the Proverbs, two agree to go do something evil or good? Um, is it when they formalize a mission statement and a vision statement and have blue sky conversations about where the institution is going to go. Um, and other questions like would under this, is this, would this mean that a, uh, a family is an institution, whether we'd say a nuclear family or a third and fourth generations, you know, all living together, uh, family. Uh, so what are the kind of the hard contours that you would see, or maybe, maybe you don't see there are any hard contours, but what, what would you see as the, the lines of demarcation for institutions? I think there are two ways to think about it. 
One is to see institutions as things to which you opt in. And in that respect, they are deeply dependent on a theory of freedom and liberty. Um, how do we make choices? There are other institutions that are foisted upon us. Now, uh, and I'll, I can give some examples of those. Uh, one, one biblical example, for example, would be priesthood. You are mm -hmm. a priest because you were born into the priestly family. You're a descendant of, of Aaron, the original high priest, and ultimately you're a descendant of, of Levi. The Levites are another good example, right? You're a, you have a certain function in the temple because of the family to which you belong. Um, you are a king because your dad was the king or something along those lines. Those institutions are unchosen and in that respect, but they're no less obligatory because, I mean, we could go through those different institutions, but they're no less obligatory and no less morally compelling because they're unchosen. Now in contemporary society, particularly in the West and particularly in America, we have become deeply uncomfortable with unchosen obligations because we think mm -hmm. that first of all, in, uh, uh, um, they, they, they rebel or the idea of them is repellent to a sort of very superficial reading of what the project of Liberty is about. Like how no one should be able to force us to do anything. I don't think that's what the project of Liberty is about. No one should be able to force us to do anything. I think in a larger sense though, of, uh, in which Rousseau, for example, speaks about the human condition. So Rousseau asks the question, uh, what is it that, how does social life come about? And if social life were so good, why are people so unhappy? And the answer that Rousseau comes to is that in fact, uh, human beings are fundamentally good or at least pleasant. And we actually would be much happier on our own. There are all sorts of reasons why we can't be on our own or why it's unsafe to be on our own. But ultimately we would be much happier to be alone. And the reason we're so miserable is because of society. It's, it's community and society and all the institutions that we collectivize into that have fundamentally made us unhappy. And the, the ideal would be to be able to undo all of those things. Um, now I think that's a, a deeply mistaken view of, of humanity, both because it's account of human beings as fundamentally good, um, I think is wrong. I don't think it means that humans are fundamentally bad. I think humans are complicated. And in fact, mm -hmm. institutions can be very good for us. Uh, it's also wrong, however, because I think what we have, uh, what we have seen in the contemporary context is that unchosen obligations far from making us miserable. In fact, were the thing that was, were, were, were the things that were supplying our best chance at happiness, having abandoned them, we're now just deeply lonely and angry at each other. And you can even see kind of, uh, in the revival, you know, in, in sort of social media culture, you can see the revival of, of the sort of terror that pervaded sort of the ancient pagan world where you just, you need to appease these faceless, nameless, vengeful gods by sacrificing others to it. And there's just this never ending cycle of bloodthirst that we need to appease. Mm -hmm. So we, we're kind of back in that, we're kind of back in that pagan <laughs> square right now in some ways. Yeah. 
Um, I think it's very but free to do whatever you want as long as you appease those, exactly. those ideals and those gods. Exactly. Yeah. As long as right. Exactly. As long as you know. As long as Baal or 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 Ares has their has their drink, you can do what you please. Now, and it, joining an institution, therefore, is it really the question of joining an institution? You have to. We have to specify what we mean. Um, there is. A quite, there is a sense of there is like that tension between opt-in and unchosenness, even in the biblical story. So just to give a one classic example, the covenant that Israel makes with God does not seem to be a matter of choice. Uh, and in fact, ancient Jewish traditions dramatize this by imagining this story where by and, and it, they're they're playing off of the uh, off of uh, um, sort of a play in words in the biblical Hebrew. Uh, which which in the in the Bible it says that the Israelites uh, sat at the foot of the mountain and uh, and heard God communicate with them. The word that the Bible uses to describe being at the foot of the mountain can also technically mean underneath the mountain. And ancient Jewish tradition has a, a lot of fun with this by imagining that actually what the Israelites were underneath the mountain because what God did was He picked up Mount Sinai, held it over the Israelites, and said either accept the covenant or in the words right. of the here will be your grave right so accept this hmm. or else now the the question that emerges from that which the the tradition immediately asks is well how can this be a, a valid covenant if it wasn't freely entered into and that's a, a an important question to ask but what it points out is that the biblical covenant like all covenants, not just biblical covenants, a covenant is a form of agreement that was very common in the ancient world between kings and vassals. Covenants were never entered into, entered into uh, freely. It was always imposed by a more powerful figure on a less powerful figure. And the Bible's insight is that while absolute monarchs and particularly emperors are bad and in many cases evil, and the Bible often, really almost all of the time, abhors them, all of the things it hates in earthly tyrants, it actually loves in God, right? God is actually a great absolute ruler. John Milton famously uh, put all of the argument in Paradise Lost. John Milton was was the great epic poet who was a fierce and incredibly successful proponent of republics uh, over and against monarchy. And John Milton... Uh, put forth all of these amazing arguments for why republics are good and moral and, in fact, monarchy is idolatrous. In Paradise Lost, he takes all of those arguments and puts them in the mouth of Satan. <laughs> mm. And and uh, I think it was William, I think it was it was William Blake who who observed that John Milton was was unknowingly of Satan's party. Um, but in fact, what's <laughs> happening is that Milton is trying to get us to realize that all of the arguments for liberty uh, and republicanism are good and moral when they're directed at other human beings. Uh, they would, however, be bad when they were if they were directed at God. Uh, now, that's important because what what the covenant is is an example of not an ins- maybe not an institution per se, but in, in some ways it, it functions like one because it comes along with rules and regulations and expectations for behavior. That's an example of a, of an institution that that uh, uh, that whose membership is compelled. Uh, the priesthood is another example of those things.
I think some people would point out, well, what about Exodus 19, where he gathers the elders and, and he recites these commands and, and they say, all of this we will do, right? And so there seems to be this, but you're saying it, it's kind of like someone with a gun to their head saying, yes, we will go along with the plan, right? Is that... Yeah, I think there, there's... It's coerced, if not forced. Yeah. yeah, there's the Bible has this this moral palette that I think in many ways is more varied than what we have today. One example of that is the question of how you behave when you're, when you're being coerced. So, uh, contemporary, the contemporary set of moral taste buds says that if you're being coerced, you can't possibly make decisions. And oftentimes that's true. The Bible has examples of that. For example, uh, sexual assault. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no, the Bible doesn't conceive of a way for a person to consent to being sexually assaulted, uh, much mm-hmm. as we don't conceive of a way to consent to being sexually assaulted. However, let's say, uh, you are the, uh, let's say you have done something that, or let's say you've behaved in such a way that, uh, uh, where you didn't really have a choice about how to behave can we make moral judgments about how you carried out uh, those actions? So in the contemporary moral sense, we'd say, well, if someone's forcing you to do something, there's really nothing to talk about. But the Bible doesn't have that uh, that sense of black and white morality. The Bible actually conceives of lots of cases where uh, people are forced to do, some, to do something and it actually matters how you behave under those circumstances. Two examples that contrast with each other. One is Egypt. The other is Babylon, uh, and namely the Babylonian Empire. Egypt... Uh, is foreordained as the place where Abraham and Sarah's descendants will be enslaved. And so the question comes of, well, if, if they, if the, the promise that God made to Abraham was your children will be slaves in Egypt, why are the Egyptians punished? It's not like they had a choice. This was going to happen. Um, I think the Bible's answer is that, well, first of all, just because it was foreordained that Egypt would be uh, the enslavers of the Israelites didn't mean that you, the Egyptian, needed to choose to be the enslaver. Uh, number one and number two, it actually matters if you carry this task out gleefully and vengefully and and immorally, or if you're just behaving in 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 according to the normal course of things. You contrast that with, and that's why Pharaoh, at a certain point, the Bible is pretty clear that his free will is removed. As a punishment, right? Pharaoh is so right. evil that he's that he's actually beyond redemption, um, or like, at least his free will is cycled on and off and on and off. Right, right. In that story, yeah. Right, right. Meaning because free will is is a privilege that God has removes from the most evil beings, right? Meaning the mm-hmm. a Pharaoh or a Hitler. Um, when you contrast that with Babylonia, right? So God also foreordains that the that if the Israelites or if the Judeans in this case behave in a certain way or misbehave in a certain way, they will be conquered and enslaved and exiled by the Babylonians. And that's precisely what happens. And yet, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor who presides over this, uh, process, I wouldn't say the Bible feels warmly about him, but he's certainly not the, the main arch-villain of that story. Mm-hmm. The main arch-villains of that story are, well, first of all, the Israelites take and the Judeans are are given are assigned a very large portion of the blame for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people who are who are really the target of God's ire are some of the nations who participated in this, even though they didn't have to. The the Edomites mm-hmm. and and so on and so yeah. forth. So the Book of Obadiah is all about how listen aimed at the, at the people of uh, of Edom. You 
had no responsibility to be a part of this destruction and certainly not to laugh at it and mock the destruction of the kingdom of Judah. And the fact that you did is a great is a grave moral error. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, if you look at how he's characterized in the Bible, I mean, he's an emperor. Um, but as far as emperors go, he's not not that bad. Um, he mm-hmm. he he allows a certain degree of latitude to many of the the refugees from the kingdom of Judah. And so, you know, again, while the Bible doesn't embrace him and, and ultimately as all emperors are in the Bible, he's punished. Um, but, but he's certainly not treated like a Pharaoh and he's not treated like, well, a, and yeah, yeah. His, his, his treatment, even within Babylonia, it, even though we only get little snippets of what life might be like there, but it's it's not the grueling forced labor of of Egypt. Right? That's it's right, and he allows Daniel to rise else. up through the ranks and so on and so forth. Right. So, so to go back to your question, uh, so to go back to your question, there there is um, there is a sense within the Bible that membership in an institution can be compelled, and it's not incompatible with you making good or bad moral choices. Hmm. And I think we, we understand this form of moral reasoning in other contexts where we just take it for granted. For example, I don't think that we, 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 we have a discourse particularly in, in 2022 for recognizing privilege. Um, but I don't think that even the, even the most, um, uh, the most, (laughs) I, I, as I'm saying this, I feel like there are people who are deranged enough to make the argument that I'm gonna pillory right now. But <laughs> <There's> always somebody. <laughs> Twitter is such a magical place. I think. Yeah. I think <laughs> even if someone says, "Well, if you're born to parents who you know are making two hundred thousand dollars a year and have a, a nice house and a nice or a nice apartment in Manhattan, um, you have a certain and you're and you're a certain and you have a certain skin color." Uh, and you have, you know, you have relatives who went to certain schools. So you have a a form of privilege that other people don't have, but I don't think that your average common, you know, your average, like commonsensical person would say it's immoral to be born. It's a, it's a personal moral Mm. failing to be born to such parents. And yet Mm. it is. And yet it is true that you were born to such a person. You did nothing to earn the privileges that you get as a consequence of it. So in those cases, I think we have no problem saying that uh, there are there are certain clubs that you did nothing to earn your way into, or there are certain there are certain bad groups that you did nothing who's in membership in whom you did nothing to deserve, and we don't think that that's uh, that that uh, we don't think that it's appropriate to make moral judgments about whether you're in those things. It's just a question of how you behave right. now that you're in them. So yeah. Institutions in many ways are like children that. porn and uh, like housing projects where the gangs kind of control and they grab kids by the time they're four years old, you know, that's right. them up in the, in the ranks. Yeah. We don't say, uh, we, we would say, how do, how do we now work them out of those, uh, institutions now that they've fallen prey to them? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And a worst case scenario. Yeah. But I think another point to make, by the way, is that these unchosen, uh, memberships are important and actually, in some cases, critical to have. They're also critical to critique. We can get to that in a little bit. But they're critical mm. to have because in many ways, they're responses to, the, to another major problem that modern 
society grapples with, which is the ephemerality of spirituality, meaning the fleeting nature mm. of inspiration, right? So it's very frequent uh, when you see on TV or in the movies, right? Somebody has like a spiritual moment is because they had an awakening or they had a, a vision or they had some life-changing experience and nothing will ever be the same after this. And the reality of it is that I think people who live good and virtuous moral lives typically don't tell their story as well. I had this one experience and nothing was ever the same after that. Usually the story is, um, I actually, um, did the moral spiritual theological equivalent of playing musical scales. I practiced every day mm -hmm. and honed my, my virtue and honed my craft. Um, the institution of the priesthood, for example, and the and, and particularly tying it to the temple, uh, is literarily, if you look in the book of Exodus, for example, a direct response to Sinai and the sin of the golden calf. Because what happens mm -hmm. there is a classic modern 21st century problem, which is the Israelites have this incredible awakening. I mean, they're the Beatles traveling to India and, and learning about sitars, right? They have this incredible moment and it's pyrotechnics and it's fireworks and it's, and it's so inspiring. And then immediately when that's done, the high has worn off and high highs are, are, are both are powerful because they can spur you to, to action. That's uh, crazier than what physics and mathematics would demand, which is an important thing, but, uh, it's also fleeting. And so as soon as that high wears off and now Moses is gone to actually do the hard work of, okay, now I've, we've heard God speak to us. Now let me figure out exactly what it is that God expects us to do moving forward. So Moses goes up mm -hmm. and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights which not co not coincidentally is the same amount of time that other long projects take. The flood, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. The point being that Moses was there for a long time. And the Israelites have this very predictable, emotionally predictable crisis where they say to themselves, hold on, the fireworks are gone and we have no idea what to do. We need another inspiration instead of, in we need another source of inspiration quick. And they they go to, and you, Aaron is feeling the same thing. They go to Aaron and they're like, let's figure out how to do this. And there's this, there's this moment, which it's easy to, I think it's, it's easy to poke fun at where, when Moses comes back down and he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you? Hey guy. <laughs> it's like, you know, to, to, to quote the, uh, in the immortal words of Jerry Seinfeld, I go on vacation for one week and the whole operation's a shambles. Uh, so he comes back and he goes to Aaron like, hey, my guy, like, what happened? And Aaron says, and this is in the Hebrew as well. He's like, well, yeah. we got together all the jewels and all the gold and we put it in a pot and out came this cow. Yeah, threw it in the fire <laughs> and out came, the, which the narrative is so particular there on the front side to show right. he carved it with a hand graving tool, right? Yeah, so, like, exactly. They're, they're, they're outing him before he ever said anything. Exactly. Right? It's sort of, I can't remember yeah. who this is. It might, it might, there, there's someone on Twitter, I think, who invented this, but it's sort of like what it's, 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 it's called the exonerative tense, right? It's like when you read a, <laughs> when you read a news article, that's like, yeah. uh, you know, person, person shot by bullet. It's like, well, someone shot right. them, right? right? So this is the exonerative <laughs> mistakes tense. were made. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the exonerative tense is I put this thing in the bowl in the, in the pot and it came yeah. out. 
But I think actually, even though the Bible, as you as you pointed out, is very uh, careful to point out to us that actually Aaron did do this, and therefore his his behavior needs to be uh, uh, examined and called into question. There is a deep emotional truth here, which is that the Israelites, Aaron included, they go nuts for a moment because they they are so uh, panicked and they are in such a, a, a crisis at having come down from the high of Sinai that they almost go into a fugue state, like a spiritual fugue state where they're just... Mm. And and I think we've all had this experience where you wake up the next morning and you're like, what did I even do last night? Um, Or or even you'll have a conversation with somebody where you reveal too much about something and you'll say, oh my God, I cannot believe Mm -hmm. I just said that. Um, This is one of those examples. And what after Moses manages to salvage the Israelites um, and save them from being destroyed, which itself is a whole story to examine the very next thing that the Bible tells us, even though there are hints that chronologically it's out of order, but the, but the Bible is very clear and deliberate in structuring Exodus literarily. The very next thing that the Bible tells us is God says to Moses, build me a temple mm-hmm. because the, and then it gives us the most boring stretch of text in the entire Hebrew <laughs> Bible from like right. the latter third of, of Exodus through the end of Leviticus, where it's just like sacrifices yeah. and details and animals and, oh, like it's hard, man, really hard. But it's such an imp- it's it's if anything, there's 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 a reason why all of these boring details are the literary and aesthetic center of the entire Bible. Everything leads up to it, Mm. and then everything is responding to it. It's the apex of the Bible. The apex of Mm. the Bible is, here's what you do for cows, here's what you do for rams, here's what you do for sheep, and here's what you do for birds, and here's what you do for flour and grain. Why is that the emotional climax of the Bible? It's because that's the point. The point is ephemerality, is dangerous. The point is inspiration is fleeting. If you want to be the kind of person that God expects us to be, and if we want to be the kind of community, society that God expects us that God expects us to build, then we have to have a way to commit to God even in the humdrum moments, even in the most mundane circumstances. And the temple allows us to do that. There's a there's a wonderful ancient tradition. Um uh it's actually a rabbinic commentary where different rabbis are trying to choose what's the most important verse in the Bible. There's love thy neighbor as thyself. That's one, that's one suggestion. The next suggestion is no, even more important than that is, uh, this is the, this is the book of the generations of man. And the rest of that verse is Hmm. man has been created in the image of God, right? The idea that Mm -hmm. not just love your neighbor, but, but everybody has, there's universal human dignity. The last opinion is no, 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 no. More important than love thy neighbor as thyself, more important than man bears the divine image is which in English means you bring the first sheep in the morning and you bring the second sheep in the afternoon. That's the most important verse in the Bible. The reason that's been, it's describing the daily sacrifice in the temple. Why is that the most important verse in the Bible? Because nothing else will penetrate unless you practice this every single day. Hmm. Now, it's therefore no mistake to get to the question of institutions that the temple is run by a hereditary priesthood, by an institution that has opt-in, that has no opt-in clause. 
that is totally unchosen and that is not open to new members other than through than through marriage technically but but certainly not to i mean that'll be your kids right the reason is because the temple is all about predictability the temple is all about the humdrum it's about consistency and the people who run it therefore need to also be predictable consistent it needs to be something that you don't even need to think about it you just need to do it now there's a reason why uh the temple and its and its administrators are neither the be or the be all and end all of biblical morality and society and spirituality nor are they abro- above reproach there are lots of failures of the priesthood in the mm-hmm. temple uh, but it's a really important part of of biblical spirituality and morality because and 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 I think it's deeply connected to the question of institutions. So in our last few moments here, thinking about, uh, I think most of us in the West will think about we only opt into institutions. Now that I've heard you, I'm thinking, well, actually, I probably by by right by dint of association, I'm already in many institutions. Um, but I, I I'm wondering if we can help people think about well, what do we do? Like, because I do think it, this, this. I don't know if this goes for synagogues, but there is an issue with churches when the institution has gone wrong, like when it's gone bad, corrupt yeah. to the core. Especially with churches, there's a lot of independent churches that there's no way to hold them accountable. Um, so for for institutions that we might be going to, or you know, you're born and raised in a particular church or a synagogue, is there a way of thinking about institutions in a pro-social way where you still have to say at the end of the day? I need to opt out of this institution. Um, and certainly institutions of Shabbat, Sabbath, I would say, and uh, you know, uh, institutions of uh, maintaining our relationship with God, those are the ones we want to be very careful of. But in the Christian tradition, the church is part of your relationship to God. And I know that's true for Judaism as well. So how would we think about those sticky situations? The easiest way to answer the question is by focusing on the institution that's meant to contrast with the priesthood. Uh, so if you take a look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy sees the, uh, society as rooted fundamentally in, I suppose what you would call the separation of powers. It has, uh, or maybe separation of powers is not as accurate as saying it has checks and balances. Checks and which balances, is, yeah. Which is to say that there's a king, there are teachers or elders, there are, uh, uh, and those teachers or elders are often associated with priests. Um, those are the two most obvious institutions in the, I suppose what you might call in the great Renaissance tradition, the Hebrew Republic. Um, and there judges as well there in Deuteronomy 17. That's right. That That's right. So, and, and so at various points when this structure is referenced there, sh- as you, as you point out, Shoftim v'shotarim, right? There are judges and, and officials. Sometimes there's Zikanim, they're elders. Sometimes they're, they're, uh, 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 they're Kohanim, they're priests. Mm-hmm. Those two institutions, their, their functions, I think are obvious. Uh, they are, uh, the point of the king is to sort of be the chief executive, the grand narrative setter for society. 
which is why in much of the subsequent story of the Israelites, the, the story is told through the lens of the king, because the king is sort of an avatar for the people. Um, the king sort of sets the grand vision. The teachers, the elders, the judges, these are the technocrats. These are the people whose job it is to know all the details of the law, to know every uh, scintilla of what it is that God wants us to do in detail, right? So it's one thing to say, uh, it's one thing for God to say, you have to serve me. Um, And I think sort of a a mistake that contemporary spirituality makes is, well, there's such a thing as, as, as loving God and serving God without doing anything that God says, it would sort of be like, right. It would sort of be like, I think I may have even said this on this podcast before, but it would sort of be like, if my wife said to me, listen, when I get home, please make sure you've taken out the garbage and you've washed all the dishes and you've fed the kids and put them to bed. And she gets home. I've done zero out of four of those things. And I said, but I love you. Well, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Do <I suppose>. you? <laughs> right. Thank you. I suppose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so the job of the elders, the judges, the teachers, the priests is to know exactly how to execute the vision. And those two institutions check each other, right? The king has to be able to see the big picture. The priests have to be able to tell us how to do things. And, and they both, they both are, are, uh, um, checked by each other in interesting ways. Now there's a third institution that makes its way into the structure, which at first glance seems like an insane thing for a society to have. And that is the prophet, the prophet, which is also in that same chapter is Mm -hmm. a total wild card. A prophet is is a person whose job it is to actually stand outside the society and critique it, to hold up a mirror to the society and say the the society as it is, is not society as it ought to be. And if you ask yourself, what is the, now the reason to have this, by the way, is because the purpose of a king and a judge is to, uh, is to run society from within the system is to operate the system. But you need a way, if the system is broken down, you need a way to reboot the computer. And that's the job of the prophet. The prophet is to stand mm-hmm. out. The job of the prophet is to stand outside the system and critique it from the outside. Um, the primary difference, technically and functionally speaking, between kings and priests on one hand and judges on one hand and the prophet on the other is that kings, monarchy, is whether it should be this way or not, we could talk about that whole thing, is hereditary. It works It works via family, at least in the Bible. Priesthood is also a non-opt-in, a non-opt-in. That is a hereditary institution. Prophets, however, and, and by the way, the elders, the, the, the system of elders as well, like this is based on who's the head of the tribe, right? So in, mm-hmm. in, in many other important ways, also hereditary, uh, if not in, in a straightforward way as priests or, or kings, but also hereditary. The prophets can be anybody. A prophet can be anybody whom God chooses. They are not hereditary. These are, these are opt-ins, right? You actually have to respond to the call. You have to, you have to be worthy of it. And, and depending on how you understand the way prophecy works, there are some theologians in, in a variety of traditions, certainly in the Jewish tradition, but I know outside the Jewish tradition as well, that argue that you actually have to earn prophecy. 
Um, hmm. It's not like a, an ATM card where you put in the prophecy card and God spits out prophecy, but you actually have to be to be suitable for prophecy. Um, right. The right vessel. Yeah. Right. Now, in a, in, a, in a day where we don't have the biblical prophets uh, like we used to have, I know there are different traditions about that, that uh, within, you know, within various Bible-believing communities about to what extent prophecy or, or, or speaking to God is still a thing. Uh, but at the very least, you know, we don't have contemporary Jeremiah's and, and Ezekiel's and Isaiah's. Um, in many ways, the, and we also don't have sort of the Aaronide priesthood as we, as mm-hmm. we once did. The thing that has taken the place uh, of those are teachers. Uh, you could call them scholars, depending on the tradition. You could call them rabbis, depending on the tradition. You could call them, uh, you could call them preachers or pastors. I don't know what you call them, but what we're trying to do is make up for a world in which, uh, our unchosen institutions have, have withered, but our Mm -hmm. primary access to the uh, to the great chosen wildcard institutions, the prophet, uh, are no longer accessible to us either. And we mm. kind of have to make our way in that world. But I think the, the, all of this is to say that if you're asking, what do I do with a broken institution? Well, that's why the ancient Israelite Republic had prophets. The point of the mm-hmm. prophet is that institutions are holy and sacred and you need to do your best to operate them as, as, as well as you can and as, and as faithfully as you can. But what the Bible does is this insane thing where it tells us there's going to be, there are going to be dissidents in your society and you have to figure and now you will be, you will be able to be fooled by such people. There'll be lots of false prophets. The Bible tells us this mm-hmm. also. There'll be false prophets. False prophets may even be able to do miracles. The Bible contemplates this right. as well, right? There will be lots of people who can easily fool you into thinking that they're prophets. But your responsibility, nevertheless, is to be on the lookout for those voices that are that are critiquing you. And which is such a crazy thing to think about. Like if you're writing a constitution, you would never put that in there. Mm-hmm. You'd never allow for it's like oh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Like the Ghostbusters didn't need a wild card, <laughs> right? Like Charlie Day is the wild right. card. It's like a crazy <laughs> thing to think about. Charlie Kelly. Um, but the Bible has a wild card. The reason for that is because at the end of the day, one of the most important things the Bible realizes is that no matter how well we plan this, it's going to go wrong. Our kings are going to fail. Our priests are going to fail. Our elders are going to fail. Heck, even our prophets are going to fail, right? Elijah, Elijah is, is essentially his story ends when he, when he fails and God essentially tells him, okay, uh, Alicia's up next. Um, things are going to fail. That's why we have prophets, because what the Bible is communicating to us is that the, the failure of institutions is actually not a sign that the system's not working. It's an inevitable part of human experience, and it's baked into the system. What we have done is we have provided you uh, what the Bible says is, and what God says is what I've done is I've provided you with a way to fix your institutions from without. And that's the, the institution, as it were, of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Now, the catch is... You can't plan prophets. If you could, they would be useless because their whole point is to account for, right. right, is to be unplanned. If you could plan for them, they'd be useless. I can't tell you exactly who is a prophet and who is not. And in fact, there's no ID card and it's not hereditary. Our responsibility as people who aspire to goodliness and godliness 
is to attune our ears and our souls to the possibility of prophetic voices in our day. Maybe literally prophetic voices, if that's your tradition. In my particular tradition, it's 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 not literally prophecy, but it's people who are speaking in that vein. Um, one, who are, people who are speaking prophetically, if not prophecy. Yeah. Right. Like, for example, one great American example, for for instance, would be Frederick Douglass, a really good example right. of someone who, who were, were, you know, if he's if he weren't a prophet, you would still I think you would still see him in the mode of a of a Jeremiah of an Ezekiel. Yeah. So yeah. I think that would be how I would think about uh, institutional failure. Well, Rabbi Doctor Ari <laughs> Lamb, just like they say on the Good Faith Effort. Hey, <laughs> thank you so much for your wisdom, and uh, y'all should check out the Good Faith Effort, uh, the podcast you do. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 